Hello, I'm Jim Irvin, and you're very welcome to another You're Not On The List, the podcast about forgotten albums and the people who love them. My guests today have each written a fascinating book about the pitfalls of entering, undergoing, and leaving the music business, be that alive or dead. Ian Winwood is a freelance writer whose work has been published in The Telegraph, Times and Enemy, but who for many years was a key writer at Kerrang!, his dream gig when he started there in 1998. Throwing himself into his work, he soon developed a reputation for going as hard as the stars he was covering, delivering copy that crackled with the frenetic pace at which he thought and wrote, and documenting what he witnessed in a way that earned him the respect of his often troubled subjects. But after almost two decades of caning it, his immersive technique was certain to end in tears or worse. It took him well over a year to win himself off drugs and booze, but now, sober for five years, he's poured everything he's learned into Bodies, a book that studies the symbiotic relationship between the music business and mental and physical torment, and makes readers wonder if perhaps we've misread the true nature of pop stardom all along. As Ian, now happily married, says about dabbling with excess and the music business, it seldom ends well which is where fellow journalist Nick Durden comes in. Nick has been writing for 30 years, 13 of them as a features writer for Q magazine, and he's covered the arts, health, family news for various newspapers. But his latest book, Exit Stage Left, is about what happens when the music ends, when people stop making it intentionally or otherwise. It includes fascinating interviews with figures at all levels of stardom and post-stardom, from Peter Perrett of The Only Ones and Martin Carr of The Boo Radleys, to Sean Ryder, Stereo MCs, Suzanne Vega, Billy Bragg and Robbie Williams and asks why is it so hard to walk away from it all. Taking together these two books say important things about the way music impacts upon its practitioners and I'm thrilled to be able to discuss that with both of them today. Well, welcome, welcome. Delighted you could both join me at last. Hope you're both well. Hello, Jim. Hiya, Jim. Hello to all your listeners. Ian, in the spirit of your work, I haven't prepared any questions for today's show. <laughs> Is that true, that you would turn up to interviews with bands uh, without any prepared questions and just, just have a conversation with them? Yeah, the closest I came was I interviewed Slayer when I was about 24, which was quite a big deal to me. It was an extremely big deal to me. I wrote subject headings down, and when the interview was finished, I said to them, would you mind if I just checked my list to make sure I'd covered all areas? Usually I have sort of three or four areas I know where I I, I want to go. And if there's a a particularly difficult question, I I usually know during the interview when it's going to come up. But yeah, I wing it. There's no no other way of, of describing it. I wing it. But you do record it and everything, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember interviewing one band and them saying to me, oh, gosh, the, the last interview we did, the person didn't record it or take notes. And I just thought, <laughs> well, that's, that's really pushing it. So, no, I do record, yeah. Well, I have known a few of those. There's some very well-known writers who claim to have photographic memory and don't uh, record anything or take down any shorthand <laughs> Uh, whatsoever. I'm not sure. The thing is, I'm, I'm not sure how that stands up in a court of law. That's the only problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, what may or may not surprise people about music journalism is for many years of its, of its existence, um, you could start work at a, at a music title uh, with absolutely no idea how to do the job. I don't think mm-hmm. anyone received any instruction whatsoever, did they? I've never received any instruction, to be honest with you. <laughs> no. no, I think you just learn on the job. Don't you? I learned by reading magazines. Yeah. It was, I went to journalism college for a year and it was full of 
in their words, failed writers who couldn't pay the mortgage anymore. And I didn't learn anything from them, but I did from reading the, you know, the enemy every week. I had a job before school. I was like the head paper boy. I would supervise the rounds and get all the rounds ready. And then I'd have an hour until the shop opened every morning, six mornings a week to, to look at the papers, read the, you know, the music magazines. See, like Nick, I also, perhaps Nick did, did the National Council for the Training of Journalists course, which was the one that I did. Even at the time, I, I thought this the, the lesson I had in, in media from working in a, in a paper shop first thing in the morning yeah. was way, I learned way, way, way more yeah. that, that it, it, during that time than I did, you know, from the people who actually were teaching me journalism, way more. I mean, literally not once, you know, whether it's for, you know, Kerrang! Or, or the Times or the Telegraph or the Guardian. No one has ever asked me if I am a qualified journalist. No, no one, ever. <laughs> Nor me. I did a pre-graduate one-year magazine journalism course, well, news and magazine at the London College of Printing. And, you know, I barely scraped by, but nobody's ever asked about it. The only good thing that came from that course was I did a two-week work placement at a music magazine. And for some reason, they kept me on. And there you it, go. And, yes, yeah, so and nobody knows just how poorly educated I really am. <laughs> no, no. And that, that is one of the things I would say about the shrinking pool of music journalism. It is quite a meritocratic place. If you can, if you, if you yeah. can do the job, then you're pretty much in without really any questions being asked. <laughs> well, look, uh, congratulations, both of you, on uh, your fantastic books. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it just seemed obvious to me to talk to you both at once. Have you been interviewed together before? No. You are our first Scylla bringing us together. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, I'm pleased because I do think they're very important books and they cover an area that I definitely feel there was a gap in the market about, which is what the music business does to people. But I wanted to ask, what was the initial impulse for you? What was the thing that spurred you to write your books, each of you? Nick? Well, I think the impulse came from the fact that I was doing the job for so many years. So I would, I was in a strange position at the age of 21 of interviewing bands who were 21 and were convinced they were going to take over the world. And then I'd interview them again 10 years later. And that hadn't quite worked out. They'd had, you know, stints in AA and NA and they were married or divorced or, or the record company had, you know, dropped them or it hadn't quite worked out for them. And it was really interesting to see them. They became more three-dimensionally human and less pop star so you know the more often I went to interview them again on their fifth album or their tenth album and I just saw the humanity shine through because before they are just an avatar aren't they they would appear on top of the pops every Thursday night and just look otherworldly and and indomitable but of course they're not and when you meet them after life has happened to them I just found that there was almost more to admire in them because they they kept going just talking to them about life and about being who they were was so much more interesting than them telling me about the fourth song on their new album or the fact that they were about to play France for the first time or whatever. You know, I, I didn't want that promo-led interview. I just wanted to talk about what on earth was it like to be you full-time. And when you did, the, the, the answers, if they were willing to talk about it, the answers were just jaw-dropping. And I kept on thinking, oh, there's there's more here than just a 1,200-word newspaper feature. I remember going to interview the Spin Doctors at the height of their 15 minutes right. of fame. I think it was Chris, the singer. Just He just cut off all his hair. He was famous for the long hair and the beard, wasn't he? And he was sat there at the end of the interview, and he looked at me and said, do you think this will last? 
and I thought, why, why are you asking me? What that yes. that sort of was very kind of poignant. Yes. That that he they didn't have any idea why it happened and how long it was going to go on. And as it turned out, it it didn't actually yeah. go on very long. And by that time, they're kind of stuck in the hamster wheel, and they're told by their management, at least until the management loses interest, you can't stop. You have to keep going. You know, one I think one of the early catalysts for the book was. Maybe 2010, 2011, I went to interview Adam Ant, and he was the first pop star I can remember who looked completely, distinctly otherworldly. I interviewed him in his, he had a pretty little muse house in South Kensington. His house was like a museum to the past. He got an autobiography of his and he signed it for me and there were platinum discs on the wall and gold and silver discs. And when I went downstairs to use the toilet, I went down this spiral staircase and I passed his bedroom, which I didn't look in, but I heard um, an Adamant song coming from there. I kind of concluded afterwards that he must have been playing a greatest hits set. And he, and he was incredibly eloquent. He was really lovely. And he was just telling me that this is who I am. And it kind of reminds me what I did, but what I still might be capable of. I kind of came away feeling really sad for him, not not in a condescending way at all, because he, you know, he'd done amazing things. He was still an incredible, incredibly voluble pop star when he chose to to tour, and I think he still tours today. He'd been misunderstood a lot. He uh, he'd been diagnosed late in life with bipolar, and life had been hard. And he said that when he was at the top of his game and you know releasing one or two albums a year, he had an outlet for all the noise in his head, and when that stopped, he was just left with the noise in his head. And I kind of took that with me and it didn't leave me for, for years. And I kept on thinking, oh, there's something to write here. And yeah, eventually um, I, I decided to write the book. So he really was living in an echo chamber of sorts. Because once that pop stardom mantle has been taken away from you, it's like he had no idea who he was anymore or who he was supposed to be. You know, if he goes down to the post office, people are going to point at him and say, didn't you used to be such and such? And it must be a, such a strange world to inhabit where you used to be someone Mm. you're not allowed to kind of age and put on weight and lose interest in music you're almost preserved in aspic if you become a pop star that tends to happen quite early in your life and then you are forever more judged on it and that to me sounds like hell which means sort of re-educating the public doesn't it because that's got a lot to do with our attitude to fame and uh, yeah. what we expect from it and, 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 and what it means to us. But it's also the industry in which they live because Kevin Rowland, you know, always saw himself as an artist, not as a pop star. So he happened to come up with songs that sounded fantastic on the radio and were number one. So the record company said, that's fantastic. Do some more, write, write more. But he thought, I don't, I don't want to write more. I want to write what I write. And it comes out as it does. So when he came out with an album in the mid-1980s that wasn't particularly commercial sounding and had no obvious hits, the record company did what they tended to do then. They didn't sit down and have a, a conference with them and say, look, this is where we think you are going wrong. They just ignored him and ignored his calls. And he thought, well, hang on, I've proved myself once. Surely I don't have to do it again. I can do it in another way. But, you know, the industry is holding him back, saying, keep on doing the same thing because that's what the people want. Mm. And I think that way madness lies. Ian, that's your cue. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You mostly cover the impact of the music business upon rock musicians in your book, don't you? What was the original impulse for you? If you're asking for the for the genesis, Jim, it, it, it's that there is an event. I have a very bad day 
in the middle of the book, and my father has a very bad day in the middle mm. of the book. Yeah. And when and when this is this is my lips to God's ears. This is true. Even when it was happening, I had a lot of time to reflect on this day, and I remember thinking, "Do you know what? This is a really good story." Mm. And this happened in 2011. So, and I wrote the book in the autumn of 2020. So that's almost it's nine and a half years that that, that germinated. During which time, lots of things had happened to me. Not very many of them good. I came to identify that all of this had happened with me working adjacent to the music industry. I'm not, I don't work in the music industry because I don't get paid by the music industry, but that's where I do my foraging and, and that's where the stories come from and, and the overwhelming number of pieces that I've written have been about music. And I just thought, well, I was sort of, up until the point where, you know, to be honest with you, it was clear to to people who knew me that I was in, my life was in danger. No one sort of noticed that I was really badly going off the rails. And I thought, well, people don't notice, you know, that, that there are so many casualties in rock and roll. People seem to be surprised when, when there are clues all over the place. Mm. And that's when I thought about writing a book about the ecosystem of rock and roll. God knows it's got, it, the scene's got its enablers, it's got its creeps, it's got its sharks. It's got its abusers, but on a on a street level, in my experience, we're quite a nice gang of people. So, what is it about this that's that's killing so many people and and injuring so many people? But also, and this is this is where I think I think uh, Exit Stage Left, Nick's Nick's book, and 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 bodies my book really are kissing cousins. A band that didn't make it into into my book, a, a young Welsh band called The Blackout. They they were on the cover of Kerrang a couple of times. But I went to Tokyo to interview them, and they were playing at a festival. They recorded their album in Los Angeles, you know, and it was, uh, if memory serves, top ten album as, as I think the second one was as well. And they're playing arenas with a special guest to My Chemical Romance. And then it's, it, as Nick was saying, then it's over really quickly, really quickly. In my experience, any any musician to whom that happens, any band or or music maker that has, has been has had that even that level of success, which is certainly not to be discounted. And then you're 27, 28 years old, and it's done. And in all likelihood, it's done. Full stop. Done. It just marks them. Whether they learn to manage it or not, there's a fabulous story in Nate's book about a member of, of Musical Youth who became an, an, an inspector of people who use ladders at heights. I think I've got that correctly, Nick. But even, even, so, yeah. but even in that, this, this dude who's got you know, a nice house, uh, uh, a comfortable living, four children, uh, even he's sort of out at weekends playing the, the, the pubs and clubs as a two-person version of, of, of musical youth. Mm. It, it just that the wound never heals. It might not, it might stop bleeding, but it never heals. And it just marks people. Do you think he gets lots of people singing past the ladder on the left-hand side to him and all that kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> 
He said he'd learned very necessarily to deflect any kind of recognition except on the weekends because it was just distracting for him. And you can see why. How wonderful music is and what a wonderful presence in our lives and, and the ability to be able to make music and then the reality of doing so and the shock of, of not getting as much as you wanted, getting more than you wanted and musicians not having a, a vocabulary, them lacking a vocabulary to say what's wrong with them and what's wrong with the system because they think of it as being ingratitude and even treason and they they interrogate themselves why am i why am i not happy but i just thought that was such a fascinating subject it seems to me that the music business is is like analogous with with joining the army you know there's all this sort of romance connected to it and you'll be doing a great thing and but you're more than likely to come out of it with PTSD and a whole bunch of problems and we're only just now learning to identify that and say it out loud as because we we could never talk about it before so as as you know as Ian said earlier we would interview bands and all of us and all three of us over the years and we would know gosh the individual singers or band members need help but of course they're not going to get it because they are on this roller coaster and they can't get off because it will be the end of their world and only now are we beginning to identify it and actually talk about it when I did interview Adamant 10 11 years ago he did talk to me about his mental health and said that he wanted to sit down with the then Prime Minister David Cameron on TV to discuss it. And I thought this is the first time anyone has said the words mental health to me. Right. In all of the many interviews I'd done, and it seemed to me then a really brave thing. And also I thought, bless him, that's never going to happen in a million years. Who's going to fess up to something like that, either in print, as he had just done, Mm. much less on the television. But of course, now that's exactly what everyone is is talking about. And I kind of feel that very slowly, I, I... when I got the book deal, I sold it on a pitch. And then, of course, I panicked thinking, who on earth is going to want to open up and talk to me about such a personal topic? The ones who did say yes, and, you know, fortunately for me, there were 50 of them. Oh, they almost treated me as if I was their psychiatrist. So it's a book full of pop stars, but it's not about music at all. It's about how we deal with with life. And they really were quite philosophical and existential. And my sense is that they were learning from what had happened to bands in the past and saw how they were either ripped off by managers and accountants or ruined by fandom or ruined by a lack of sales or or their mental health and thinking, well, we're not going to fall into the same hole. I remember interviewing mm. Radiohead in the early 90s, very beginning of their career, and they said that all they were doing now was reading the uh, rock star biographies of of bands in the 70s because they wanted to learn where they had gone wrong and make sure that that wouldn't happen to them. Mm. And so now, I mean, recently in the last few weeks, Sam Fender and Arlo Parks, two artists at the height of their career at the moment, have just pulled out of tours because of their mental health. That wouldn't have happened five years ago, I don't think, much Mm. less 20, 30, 40 years ago. So maybe slowly the industry is realizing that these artists don't have to be a flash in the pan and it might be worthwhile taking care of them? I think the audience needs to learn to ditch its idea that everything about this life, even the parts that they know are to be dangerous and exhausting, are nonetheless enviable. I think Mm. that that's quite a dangerous assumption to have. It's a dangerous belief system. 
Now, I've talked a bit about this on this podcast before because it only occurred to me recently that a lot of the off-the-hook pop star behaviour that we mythologise, particularly as music journalists, it's more or less mental illness, isn't it? Yeah. There's certainly a big crossover in the Venn diagram. The band has risen to, to a point where people know their name, strangers know their name and know their music. Those people are already tough. Right, They've already spent years, likely years, riding in vans, playing to no one, being rejected by record companies, sleeping on floors. The, the members of that band in the early days who just thought, no, this life is not for me, they've already split. They're already gone. So what you've got left are the, are the, are the tough guys, the tough gals and the people that know about hard work and know about perseverance. So if those people are then saying to you at the point where they have attained a measure of popularity, I need to step back, believe them, because it is true. We seem to, as a society, like fame, don't we? But we like people to be famous and then we torment them for it. It's sort of you're damned if you win, damned if you lose. Why is that, do you think? Yeah, we have a very strange relationship with fame, don't we? A couple of years ago, just before starting the book, I interviewed Mickey Bereni from Lush, whose memoir has just come out, which is just fantastic. And she was telling me that um, she walked away very deliberately from music and became a sub-editor at IPC. So she didn't want to work on the enemy titles or any of the music titles. Just she wanted a, a complete separation from her past. And her colleagues could never quite get over the fact that they were sitting next to someone who had been on top of the pop. So we do look at them as if they are almost in a literal sense, extraordinary people who we want to worship them. We want to live vicariously through them. You know, that's one reason why I think as a pop star, Robbie Williams has been fascinating for such a long time, whether you like his music or not, because he seems to live so very close to so many different edges. You know, he was a lifetime of addiction, a lifetime of uh, massive self-confidence, a lifetime of no confidence whatsoever. And everything seems kind of vital and italicized. And if we are filleting chickens for a living, then that looks exciting by comparison, even if they do crash and burn. With, with Robbie Williams, it's all on display as well, isn't it? It is. He's one of the first stars to break the yeah. fourth wall in, in that way, I think. Yeah, no filter. <clears throat> and... Yet we became used to seeing, like through X Factor, a little bit behind the scenes of the of the pop yeah. process, didn't we? But Robbie's just yeah. full on. He's like the Bourbourg Museum in Paris or something. All the workings on the outside, isn't it? You, know, yes. you see it all going on in front of you. Yeah, which I I felt made him more interesting and relatable because, of course, I can't relate to Robbie Williams in any real shape or form. I'm not even as good a football player as he is. But the fact that mm-hmm. he kind of wobbles and talks about wobbling and talks about hating himself and having to summon up strength from god knows where to step out on a stage at nebworth is is really intriguing as and yeah exactly as you said that since then x factors happened and we've seen oh gosh pop stars are real people and that was what was so interesting for me for the book that i really wasn't inter- interviewing pop stars they were so eminently human and humane and and i came away with a real sense of admiration, I think, for everyone I spoke to, because they were so vulnerable, but there was all this strength tied up in that vulnerability that just made them endlessly fascinating people. The other thing we we forget is that we've only been doing this for 
few decades really haven't we yeah it's all comparatively new yeah so we watch people that go that go through it i mean take someone like elvis you know who was completely subsumed by stardom in yeah. a way and didn't and didn't survive it and then you get somebody like madonna who seems to be able to ride the rodeo beast and and uh, and yet arguably mm. didn't know when to stop it shows that you've either got to be incredibly thick-skinned or incredibly intelligent to survive it. Uh, you've got yeah. to n- know what you're doing going in or read up on it or maybe just not not give a shit. Yeah, and you do actually, yeah. you know, do, we said I said earlier about being extraordinary. You do really have to be extraordinary. All the people that have made it have never made it by accident. You know, maybe the occasional drum or bassist has. But there's, there's amazing strength and you know, commitment and drive and ambition and ego, because these are the people who have lived out their wildest dreams. And I don't know many people in my life who have lived out their wildest dreams, but these people have. So they do really have something extra. And that's, yeah, that's a fascinating spectator sport for the rest of us just to sit back and watch. But it's the idea that what you are attempting to communicate is being received by people. And I think that 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 metric for them when they see it tail off it must just be the worst it must be be crushing for them and 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 that you know the motivation to be famous and i'm not doubting that 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 many people have that motivation the people that i write about tend not to have that motivation but they do have the motivation to be successful because it's it's communication and for a lot of people in the business just the chance to make an album or something would be seen as a huge success wouldn't it yeah Um, you know that's a that's a huge life goal achieved right there yeah i think everybody that i interviewed decided that they actually didn't had never wanted to be famous in the first place it just came with the job and a lot of people found peace when they stepped away from it so if if they found that their audience had diminished they didn't care they were perfectly happy that may mean that a record company may never show interest in them again so what a lot of them were saying look i'm not doing a nine-to-five job i'm i'm living my life's dream and there are some stories in the book that i thought were so interesting in terms of you can have one moment of inspiration in 1978 and write a three-minute single that connects <clears throat> and it is paying your mortgage 40 years later I just think that's incredible. You know, everyone is waiting for their back catalogue to come along and rediscover them, either for financial reasons or for the glory or for the fact that they can go back out and play live again because it's quite fun to play even, you know, the dog and duck on a, on a, on a wet Thursday night. It's, it's an unusual way to spend your time on earth, I found. <laughs> yes. Ian, in, in your book, Bodies, you define the music industry as a coalition of uneasy and poorly defined codependents. <laughs> that rings very true, but can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, I can. It, it is this weird lack of structure. So a band has a manager, yet the band can sack that manager. If you have a quote-unquote normal job, your manager can sack you. You, can, you can't sack your manager. I, I interviewed them, um, they might be giants, uh, last year, uh, who, who, who are a, a group I love. I love them. They said something, one of them said something to me that I just hadn't previously considered before, which is that a manager will usually manage, often anyway, you know, three or four or five acts. You might not be the priority. So he said He said that when they used to have a formal manager, they look after their own affairs now. When, when they used to have a formal manager, 
they would get offers, but the offers wouldn't actually reach them. The manager would divert the offer to one of them. Think, oh, no, this is better for another one of my acts who's either up and coming and I want them to get the break. It's just all very, very confused. I think that that's what what I meant. There's something fundamentally amateurish about the whole thing, though, isn't there? You know, it's a yeah, it's a bunch of chances running the affairs of a bunch of chances, and and nobody can really say for sure what's going on, but somehow they they make it work, and it's incredible that someone's built an edifice, a, a, an industry. Uh, you know, based on the on the whims of people as capricious as the section of humanity that wants to make pop music for a living. And it, it's incredible. Like if you think, if you, uh, Jim, if you think about if you think about a tour, you've got essentially a, a group of people that overwhelmingly are drinking way too much, yeah. way too much, are going from city to city. But they're also like a crap team, like a military unit, Mm. whatever has gone wrong, however you're feeling, if the equipment breaks down, the show will happen. It's, it's, it's remarkable. But there you are on on this on this cocoon. I'm imagining a tour bus where people are sort of going, uh, go mad together. They don't notice how far their base level is from what it would be were they not perhaps doing this job of work. And and they arrive in their dressing room, which is an office, and they have been supplied with two cases of beer, four bottles of wine, and two bottles of spirits. There aren't many jobs where you go to work and that that's laid on for you. But all that's really required of you is that you are able to function on stage. I mean, do you think there is any kind of solution? Could bands and managers perhaps be made to belong to some sort of guild or or advisory body that holds up certain standards there's certain duty of care like you have to have a license to be a performer that's there for your own protection i think i think that there are two things that that, that are happening uh, well there's one thing that's happening and one thing that absolutely needs to happen one is that the the industry is uh, having a conversation about mental health But let's absolutely say what the root of the problem in the 21st century is. And it's that musicians are being ripped off left, sideways, backwards and forwards. They are being ripped off because the music they record is now all but virtually worthless. So pay them a proper wage, pay them fairly for the music that they have created. And then if they want to go out on on you know back breaking world tours at least it's a matter of conscious choice for them rather than a matter of necessity that th- those are the, i think the first principles just stop stealing from them nick did you get any sense that there's a perfect way to survive the end of a career in the music business is there a perfect solution to that eventuality well the artists i spoke to for the book fell into two fairly distinct camps one who were happy to apply the nostalgia trade because it was fun and because it paid them a living wage, and others who thought it was the kiss of creative death and they had to continually move forward. So acts like Franz Ferdinand, James, um, Suzanne Vega is another one who was really interesting in telling me about how her own commercial peak passed almost in the blink of an eye. And she hadn't done anything wrong. She had done something right in showing the world that there was nothing quite as powerful as an emotive singer-songwriter. By the time she released her third album in 1990, there were dozens of you know younger 
emotive singer-songwriters doing the rounds. And suddenly she realized that she was no longer hip or happening anymore. So she kind of pivoted, went to cult status, wrote and recorded exactly what she wanted. I think she's done a few Broadway shows and she's written for other artists. and She's done all sorts of different things. And she has continued 30 years after her notional peak and is still entirely in control of her career. Um, isn't famous at all. It just happens to be a very successful singer-songwriter and seemed of almost all the people I interviewed, the one I found to be most at peace. Oh, it sounds as if the best thing to do is to try and tailor your career to your own requirements, isn't it? You're, what, yeah. what you're capable of doing. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's important to do it on your terms, but of course she didn't. She was shunted out because Sinead O'Connor was around, Tanita Tickerham, Jewel, Fiona Apple. Yeah. So she just had to hold hands up and say, okay, well, it was fun while it lasted, but I'm not over yet. And she seemed to make her peace quite quickly yeah. and and has continued, has, as has Natalie Merchant. You know, none of them, I found, stopped. Years ago for Q magazine, I went on a, an, an away day trip with um, Gary Newman's fan club. It was fascinating that this is pre-internet. So somebody like Gary Newman, who had been huge maybe 10, 20 years before, was now no longer a next big thing, no longer on any major record company's radar, but he could be entirely sustained by a very active fan club. And of course, now every artist can do that. They can just get rid of the, the middleman, the middlewoman, and deal direct online with their fans. Mm. And that's enough to keep them afloat. And yes, they may well wish to be playing Wembley Arena, but then I guess every single band wishes they were playing Wembley Arena every night, but they're nevertheless perfectly happy to still be making music, and that's their bread and butter. Uh, Gary Newman very recently did play Wembley Arena. That's what I mean. It always comes around, doesn't it? They they wait yeah. for for fashion to come back around and find them because Gary Newman was rediscovered not just by Sugar Babes but by loads of hip hop acts in America. And suddenly he thought, oh "My God, my music is out there working really hard for me all this time, and I'm yeah. back." And that's that's great, isn't and it? You, and and you've got Trent Reznor going. Yeah. This guy totally spoke to me and without him what would i be remarkable that's that's what music does it, it kind of touches those it touches so deep and personally that if those people then grow up and make music themselves the old rock star will always have yeah. another another go on on the merry-go-round and the other thing with gary newman of course is that he was diagnosed with um, asperger's wasn't he so yeah. there's the yeah. other thing i was saying earlier that all musicians are uh, are on the spectrum to a greater or lesser extent. Yes, and as you said, a lot of the ones in my book were were, were telling me that they just had tests or they they thought they had ADHD, and yeah, and they realised that without it, they wouldn't have been able to have made music in the first place, which was fascinating. Ian, you mentioned in your book that musicians um, have a have a mortality rate that was twice as high as the general population in in each age group, and that they were more likely to. Uh, suffer from substance abuse and suicide and even murder uh, than mm. than any other um, profession, which is extraordinary, isn't it? So, uh, an academic by the name of, of Geordie Shenton, uh, who who is also in um, in partnership or, or works with a boots on the ground organisation that seeks to help working musicians with with their mental health, um, called Tonic Music for Mental Health. He told me that, that the suicide statistics are shocking, but he said to me they would be even more shocking because suicide is actually a three-pronged uh, pr process. There are, th there are three 
three stages of it. There is the actual act of committing suicide. There is believing that you're going to commit suicide and planning how you would do it and then not doing it uh, and then not committing the act. And and then at the, uh, I suppose the lowest rung of the ladder is feeling suicidal and considering suicide, but not making any plans further than that. And he said that if you take those three aspects, rather than simply the body count itself, if you if you take those three aspects and put them together, the figures truly are shocking. And that 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 really did stick with me. There was a poll by the Canadian East Coast Music Association that polled musicians and 26% of them had had suicidal thoughts in, in recent weeks, uh, which compared to the general population count of mm. 3%, which is eight times as many. I mean, yeah, that's, pretty, yeah, it's pretty extreme. Well, I could talk about this all day, but um, we haven't got time to do that. So I just urge readers to read both books, Bodies by Ian Winwood and Exit Stage Left by Nick Durden. Very important on the way that music has developed uh, to be a danger to the people involved. And I think a lot of it is to do with public perception of of what the job entails and uh, the sort of expectation that artists put upon themselves to do certain things uh, and to present in a certain way uh, uh, as part of the job. It's, It's a fascinating subject, I think. Right, well, let's move on to the music that you've brought in to discuss today. And Ian, we'll start with you. It's from Sweden, circa 2005, some punk rock, no less. The band is called Randy and the album is called Randy the Band.
That's Randy the Band, the choice of my guest Ian Winwood, the sixth and to date last album by Swedish punks, Randy, released in 2005. You heard Punk Rock High, Going Out with the Dead, and The World is Getting Bored. So, Ian, tell us about the allure of Swedish punk vintage 2005. So, there were many occasions, just listening to that playback there, Jim, when I truly cannot believe that Randy did not become the biggest band in the world. Uh, <laughs> I remember going to, so they're from Sweden, they're from Northern Sweden, uh, contemporaries of and friends with the Hives. And I remember going to Bargastar, the, the, the Hives' hometown, to, to interview them. And they were lovely. The Hives were lovely. But I do remember thinking, I actually like Randy so much more. You know, they, they, didn't, they don't look as cool as the Hives. The band name is just terrible. But they write songs so well. I think that they can write full-blooded punk rock songs that sound fully properly energetic and and original while also being recognizable as, as as punk rock but they're also funny as well the opening lines to the first song that you heard there uh, so i went to punk rock high the school of rock i bought electric guitar to compensate for my small cock um <laughs> which i just think i just think is great and then in the chorus they say um we're still getting it on doing writing our songs doing everything that we can sticking it to the man yeah. and they do it in such a, a self brilliantly self-deprecating way so this was their sixth and final album uh, uh, what... it's actually four albums Jim, four albums and a couple of eps oh, okay so what happened to them then i don't know what became of them I've no idea. They just stopped being. I mean, they were, you know, they were by no means successful on any particular level to them. They truly are one of the great lost bands, and this is is such a fantastic record. I found myself falling for it the more I listened to it. I mean, the things I right. found preposterous at first, you know, really grew on me. I love stuff. Uh, once I was deciphering the lyrics, like. Um, I've got a high squeaky voice like a mouse in a can. <laughs> That's a great line. Right, right. It's just really good. <laughs> really good, really good. Yeah. This is sort of um, punk rock the musical in some way, isn't it? Yeah. The self-consciousness is part of the recipe, you realise, after a while. And and I started to kind of go with its sort of inherent silliness, like you were with a carry-on film or something. The, the audacity of doing it is part of the fun and part of the enjoyment of it. But I was interested, what, what was the context for this? What was their reason for doing this in Sweden in 2005? Were they part of a scene? Was there anything else going on that, that made them do this? Or is it just sort of completely out of the blue? No, I, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, they were sort of, they were on a Swedish label, but on the Swedish Burning Heart label, okay. which which was highly owned by, by Brett Gurevitz, a guy called Brett Gurevitz who also owns the American punk rock label, Epitaph. Uh. At that time, the, the fabulous American punk rock band, No Effect, were on Epitaph. And no, and Randy were, the, Fat Mike from No Effect's his favourite band. So I always thought of it as a more transatlantic than a Swedish thing. I guess you had bands like the Helicopters going on and the Hives. I don't think it was a particularly Swedish thing, although you can hear that they're, they're certainly Scandinavian. I think you can tell from listening to the, to the singer's voice, Stefan's voice, while he's singing. But no, they certainly weren't. They certainly weren't part of a of a scene. And 
absolutely not part of a media scene, no. No. Nick, what did you make of it? Um, well, I'd never heard of them. Hands up. I'd never, never heard of them. Um, I was very familiar with the hives at the time. Mm. Um, I thought it was incredibly entertaining. I'm almost slightly relieved that we're doing this remotely so that Ian can't lean over and thump me. But it, it reminded me a little bit of Towers of London, who I'd interviewed in my book. Oh, my God. But no, but in terms of <laughs> it was I didn't know if this was punk as panto. So it was very kind of tongue in cheek with songs about razor blades. And but I thought it was so full of energy and an, enth- and an enthusiasm that was really hard to resist. You knew that they're not taking themselves seriously at all. I couldn't work out whether they were sending up the genre or whether they were a celebration of it. Well, they use a lot of tropes, don't they? They've got loads of, they drop in loads of little things that you recognise, little riffs and licks and sort of punk signifiers. So you feel they're really nodding, leaning in, winking at the genre in, in, in some respects. Uh, but they do it with so much affection, uh, I think. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so. I'd say it's done with more than affection. Yeah. I'd, say it's done, I'd say it's done with love. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a deconstructive take you've, you've just done there. <laughs> I'm not sure that I've ever, to be honest with you, thought of it in that way. When it when it gets going, it just moves me in a very visceral mm. uh, way. And my mm. response, I, I, I mean, I do have an emotion, an intellectual response to it, and I can articulate it, but primarily it's the, it's the emotional, my emotional response to it. I just think that they're really, really fine, fine songwriters. Yeah, as as Ian said, you don't have to intellectualise this music, you just have to enjoy it. And isn't that when music is at its best? Mm. You're not pontificating about it, you're just turning the sound up and enjoying it. And that's why I thought it was incredibly entertaining. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The first version of punk was was genuinely angry. There's no anger here. This is just, from what I can tell, it sounds like they're... You know, they recorded it on a trampoline. They had so much fun. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a normal song. I, I, I think you're right. I don't think they do take themselves seriously. I think they take the issues that they're singing about or, or referencing ser- seriously. Okay. But the way it is presented is, you're right, that's a great line, Nick, on a, on a, on a trampoline. Glenny from Motorhead once described uh, the music as Little Richard as, as, as being possessed of a fierce joy. And I yeah. just think that that's such an unbeatable description of, of, of great rock and roll. Mm. And I think Randy had fierce joy. And, and that, that's a really winning combination for me. Yes, absolutely. No, I totally buy that. Fierce joy. And I really enjoyed getting to know it as well. Thank you for bringing that in, Ian. Randy the band. Uh, now, Nick, let's go on to your choice, which I think it's safe to say is a complete contrast to that, isn't it? <laughs> it is a little bit, yeah. What have you chosen for us from 1990? I've chosen the debut album from the Sundays, Reading, Writing and Arithmetic. Good to 
Which was my guest, Nick Durden, the Sunday's debut album on Rough Trade from 1990, Reading, Writing and Arithmetic, although singer Harriet Wheeler was from Reading, and I've heard somewhere that it's supposed to be pronounced Reading, Writing and Arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, and what you heard there was Can't Be Sure, Here's Where the Story Ends and Finest Hour. So, Nick, tell us about your relationship with this one. Oh, it's just such a gorgeous record. It, it has It gives me such a visceral feeling inside in, in the same way. The Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses does, although for obviously very different reasons. It's just <laughs> such a beautiful, beautifully physical thing to listen to. So when this came out, it was, I think, can't be sure, the debut single was 89. Yeah. And the album 1990. And I was seriously into my music then. I'd been weaned on commercial music and then listening just to whatever was in the charts. And then by my late teens, I was influenced entirely by what was in the pages of the Melody Maker and the NME, the New Order and Echo and the Bunnymen and The Cure. And then this came along and I, I, I don't think I've ever fallen so quickly and heavily in love with someone's voice as, as when I heard Can't Be Sure. It's, I'd never heard anything like it. I mean, obviously, it's clearly influenced by the Smiths and by the Cocteau Twins. But there's just something about the way Harriet sings as if she is still in her mother's womb almost. It's a really cotton woolly sound. And I was just completely hypnotized, sold. And I had no idea what she looked like, but, you know, she had me forever. I was completely in love. And I just thought it's such a beautiful record in many ways. It was just beautiful Johnny Marr kind of honey licks. And Harriet has this wonderful way with words that I think rescued it from being too fey and too twee. So in, in Can't Be Sure, she says, England, my country, the home of the free, such miserable weather. And then there's a song on the album called I Kicked a Boy, which she sings, when the weather's fine, when it's sunny outside, I think about the time I kicked a boy till he cried, or hideous towns make me throw up. Another one is um, I found a pound on the underground. And I just thought these were incredibly English, incredibly sweet and characterful songs and purely seductive. Did you become an Arch fan? Did you kind of follow them around, see them play live and all that kind of thing? Nothing. It was one of those kind of affairs, almost like I shipped the pass in the night. I <laughs> loved this album, never saw them live. Um, you know, this is 1990. So by now also, I was really into Manchester. So, and I was starting to write um, for a few independent, you know, indie magazines. So I was writing about whoever was following in the wake of the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays bands like World of Twist and Paris Angels and New Fast Automatic Daffodils. If I remember correctly, they didn't do very much press. They absolutely hated the process of becoming famous, as we discussed earlier, and seemed to disappear. They disappeared from my world quite quickly. I wasn't much taken with their second or third album. And after that, they just called it a day. And of course, because they did that, they remained in a way for many people perfect ever since, because they've never returned, never come back, never do reunions, never do interviews. So it was just this one album that I thought in and of itself was perfect. And every time I go back to it, it's just, it's almost like I fall in love again with as much depth and yeah, profundity and all the rest of it. They were sort of Salinger of pop in a way, weren't they? Yes. You yeah. Know, one great moment and a couple of others and then that's it, done. And the idea that they became really mysterious and enigmatic because they stopped to have a family. <gasps> How can you do that? How can you leave just to have a family? And you know, I, you know, well, it's like what we were saying earlier, isn't it, about life happening to pop stars as well? Yeah, yeah, which seems to be so yeah confusing to so many people. I thought this record was one of those that's perfect for a fleeting moment. You know, love it for a few weeks and then 
put it away and never feel the need to listen to it again. I don't know why, just that that was my reaction to it. But I'd forgotten, uh, until I listened to it again, quite how minimal it is. You really just get the guitar, bass, drums and voice, don't you? There's nothing else going on. It's very sparely produced. And it was done by um, Ray Shulman of Gentle Giant, who'd just Mm. come off um, birthday by the Sugar Cubes, hadn't he? So that was a big kind of indie thing in, in, in 1989, wasn't it? Which was another one I loved at the time, yeah, and, and that debut album, yeah. Well, it got to number four in the charts, sold half a million copies, so it did really well. Um, but then Rough Trade went down and it wasn't available for about five years. So that helped its legend a bit, didn't it? Because it was everywhere for a while and then suddenly you couldn't get hold of a copy. Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And obviously because of this because of this show, I've been doing a bit of research and there's a lot of fan writing on online about them the fact that they've never come back and you know people trying to track them down this one i read a long read yesterday from america from a few years ago of a journalist who loved them so much and went on for several thousand words about just how much he loved them and he wanted to track them down for an interview and i think he managed to locate the um, bassist online and the bassist very politely said no thanks so he asked again and the bassist said no thanks and so he got his assistant to track down where Dave and Harriet, they're a married couple, where they live. And he had a plan to take his wife and children over for a holiday in Europe. And they would have a quick stopover in presumably London, where he would go and knock on their door and tell them how much he meant to them. Or they meant to him, sorry. And fortunately, he decided, he realized maybe a little bit too late that that was an insane idea <laughs> and he should just leave them be. Yeah. Did you try and get them for the book at all? I did. I, I wanted to. And then I I read a few things and I thought she doesn't want to be bothered. So um, I didn't. And it would have to be Harriet or, or nobody. Ian, did you have any relationship with this record prior to this? Um, I had reached the point uh, this morning when I listened to it again, where and this isn't revenge for, for preparing Randy to Towers of London, um, <laughs> uh, where I didn't hate it. Oh, no. <laughs> and I I recognise why I don't, it doesn't sing to me. I recognise, I hope at least, its its qualities. And certainly when Nick describes it so well, I can definitely, absolutely see it. And actually the point where I, I, I began just to prise it open a little bit, was in was was through the portal of the lyrics that was that was the thing that 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 helped me the lyrical aspects about english towns and um, and and the english that i thought oh okay as some kind of counterpoint to the music that was just not really working for me at all it just wouldn't have rocked to me to me in 1990 and there is a still a part of me that's that listener, to be honest. And it just, I just, I just could not yeah. lock up with it. To be honest, I can appreciate that entirely because a lot of the bands that came up around the same time who had perhaps a slightly comparable sound just wouldn't have floated with me at all. I would have said, no, no, no too tweet and quickly taken it off. But yeah, right. the, the lyrics and I thought she had a beautiful voice, a really unusually beautiful voice as well. Were you a John Peel fan at all, Ian? Because he fell upon this at the time. And he did, yeah. It was the perfect synthesis of three of his favourite sounds, the Smiths, the Cocteau Twins and uh, 
uh, and altered images. Yeah, I loved all of those bands. I have to say, yeah. Yeah. The thing about the thing about John Peel, though, Jim, is that he'd also have a session from Extreme Noise Terror or yes, millions, yes. millions of dead cops. So, <laughs> well, of course, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. But uh, yes, his part of his aesthetic was perfectly served by this record, wasn't it? I think mm. it was his. Um, Number one in his festive festive fifty in uh, nineteen eighty nine, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was really pleased to be reunited with it. I must say that you know I, I can't be sure uh, when I'll ever listen to it again. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just think it was it's of its time, isn't it? it? It was perfect in its moment when it first appeared, but we've moved on. Yeah, it reminds me of being, yeah, 18, 19 and wearing DMs and oversized cardigans again, being the ultimate indicate. We would, have not, like we, would have, we would have not got on in the slightest. We would not have got on, no way. Teenagers. I mean, I don't have the album to burn, so I'm going to burn my phone instead. <laughs> can <laughs> yeah, you do that? <laughs> can you wait till this is over, though, Ian? Uh, because uh, yeah, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> we need you for a bit. Yes, but anyway, Nick, thank you for reacquainting me with it, at least. I did go back and listen to the uh, other albums, and, and yeah, you're right, they don't really hold up do they you do wonder where it goes and, and why it's yeah where does that creativity and that or ability simply that where where does it go there's something about the lyrics as you say on this record they're very particularly peculiar on this album aren't they, they? are and they get a bit more normal with their with their subsequent records yeah i did appreciate um live for tomorrow and a perfect behind that's a good line yes yes oh and there's another one a little souvenir of a terrible year that makes my eyes feel sore she had a really nice way of yeah really nice turn of phrase when i think about the shed it makes me turn red that one <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> but, yeah, no, they're, they're just sort of beautiful little middle-class suburban short stories. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I think one song on there is complaining about um, the misery of being in a in a house full of students and, you know, never having hot water, never having the room you want, never having yeah. the TV or the kitchen's always full of crap. And you think these are tiny little, almost Mike Lee-esque situations that she's kind of concocted into three-minute songs with someone who sounds like Johnny Marr on guitar. <laughs> yep, so if you fancy Mike Lee with Johnny Marr on guitar, you know where to come. The Sundays, reading, writing and arithmetic, or reading, writing and arithmetic, quite possibly, which I suppose ties in with that kind of suburban uh, story thing. Uh, that might be the, the, the proper title for it. Good. Well, now it's my turn. Let's uh, whisk back to 1997, 25 years, for the Jayhawks' Sound of Lies. <laughs>
From the spring of 1997, that's the Jayhawk Sound of Lies, my choice on this episode. And what you heard there was Dying on the Vine, Think About It, and uh, opening track, The Man Who Loved Life. So, Ian, like you with Randy, um, I, I think the Jayhawks just should be enormous. I just assumed that they would become a great thing uh, somewhere down the line, and it never quite happened. I can sort of understand it because they've never taken the easy route. Uh, and indeed, with this album, they sort of blew their established sound um, out of the water, uh, which probably didn't make things easy for them or their fans. Um, they started out in the Minneapolis-St. Paul region of the United States, Twin Cities, uh, in the mid-'80s as a kind of alt-country rock band. Uh, one of the pioneers of that sound, really, centred around singers and writers Mark Olson and Gary Lewis. They made two indie albums and then two for Deaf American, Hollywood Town Hall and the excellent Tomorrow, The Green Grass. And just after that one, Mark Olson unexpectedly quit and apparently took most of the country uh, country rock sound with him. Gary Lewis recalibrated the band for this, their fifth, and I'm saying finest album, and uh, wrote the majority of the material. And as such, he's got something to prove. There's a sort of an air of both freedom and pressure to the writing. You can tell he's there's sort of anger, there's confusion, there's exploration, and there's a sort of feverish need to push the envelope. And it does this just weird thing that's, that stuff comes out of the songs that you're just not expecting in the moment. But once you've heard it, you go, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to happen <laughs> right then. Uh, it begins a comparatively muted way with the um, uh, Man Who Loved Life, uh, Karen Grotberg playing their beautiful piano intro. And uh, then we get the first clue that we're not going to be in familiar, familiar territory with just the weight of the rhythm section which comes in, rolls in with a depth uh, that's unusual in uh, alt country, big subby bass and rumble, rumbling tom toms, and the only thing that's anything to do with country is this sort of um, a recessed bit of fiddle playing long legato parts, and there's a mention of five point stars and canyons in the lyric. There's a beetly section with a new la la harmony, but, uh, Gary and Karen singing together. Then at three minutes thirty seconds, Gary Lewis plays a sort of guitar solo that sounds like it's being held in check. Uh, it's a really kind of tense sound. And as the album continues, this seems to be the recipe. There's some surprisingly tough sound choices, a growling Hammond organ used for its ferocity rather than its musicality, and strings that darken rather than sweeten the sound. Uh, you heard a bit of that on that uh, track, Think About It, and generally unfettered guitars. So the production is bigger and fiercer than any of their previous records. And one of the reasons for that is it was recorded with a guy called Brian Paulson, who's a sort of Steve Albini figure that came up through the sharper end of, of, of indie rock. He used to do things like Dinosaur Jr. And, and he did Slint Spiderland. His sound mixed with their sound is what gives this record its, its edge, I think. The songs are generally longer and weightier than before and the lyrics are a little bit more unsettled and oblique. Quite often, if a song starts out sweetly, like Trouble, it soon turns into something else completely, and that one eventually sounds like a collision between Radiohead and ELO. So it's full of ideas and this slightly unhinged production. Uh, the critics weren't sure what to make of it. Uh, David Brown in Rolling Stone called it Wimpy Country meets Wimpy Rock, which seems completely wrong on both counts. A grumpy old Robert Christgau labelled it a dud. In Mojo, however, we ranked it 19th in our albums of the year, above The Prodigy, Wilco's being there, and The Chemical Brothers' Dig Your Own Grave. Number one that year was OK Computer by Radiohead, so it was a strong year. But this record was somehow soon forgotten, and indeed the Jayhawks just became the band that never got its due. The next album, Smile, got a famous review in the New York Times headlined, What If You Made a Classic and Nobody Cared? 
Um, and I think they'd already done that with this record. But for me, it's one of those albums that every time I play it, I'm freshly amazed by how great it is. It still holds up. And one of the reasons, I think, is it's not tethered to a genre or a fad. It's just a group of great impassioned songs lustily played. It reminds me of something like Tom Petty's Wildflowers, one of those records where you hear that everyone involved is up their game and is apparently having a great time. I don't know how true that is, but uh, it feels there's a tremendous amount of energy coming out of the grooves. And, uh, and it still has the ability to surprise me all these years later. Well, you were saying about the song Trouble. See, I already knew this album. I don't, I don't love it as much as you do, Jim, but I agree with you that it's definitely an overlooked gem. And they played a, a few years ago uh, at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, and I, I went uh, in the hope that they would play Trouble. It's not only the best song on the album, it's one of my favourite songs. And they played it like seven songs in. And I thought, I've seen what I wanted to see and left. <laughs> I just left the show, which is terrible. But you said it sounds like a cross between Radiohead and ELO. It's, it's a direct steal from Our House by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Oh, yeah. When it says it's, it was just the blind leading the blind, and, it, and the note is, Our house is a very, very, very nice house. Every time you hear it from now on, Jim, you will sing in your head, Our House, and I've ruined that song for you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, I think this record's full of those kind of echoes. You know, it's um, there's one there's one of the guitar solos on here, reminds me of um, uh, Emma by Hot Chocolate, which I'm sure wasn't in their minds when they came up with it, but it does sound like a record made by pop fans, people with a really strong sense of, of musical history, uh, you know, in the in the songs they write and 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 the way they've made the record. Right. Because it's got that real analog warmth about it. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a real it's it's such a beautifully beautiful sounding record. Yeah, yeah. Nick, what about you? Did you know this record at all? I'd say it passed me by at the time. They were to me in my mind, I always kind of mixed them together with acts like Midlake and Wilco and Granddaddy, War on Drugs, you know, the kind of band who would have supported R.E.M. at Milton Keynes Bowl and did it really well. Cool. But I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful record, incredibly warm and, you know, on, on earphones. It just sounds wonderful. I guess I can see why they didn't really make it if they didn't have, you know, a Michael Stipe up front or a particular hooky single. Because, um, I don't know, are they an album's band? Because it sounds... yeah. This is of a piece, isn't it? And I that's why I liked it so much. But yeah, breaking it up and sticking songs on, on the radio to, to make them a big hit. I can imagine that's why they struggled. Trouble trouble should have been a big hit. There's trouble is gorgeous. No doubt yeah. about that. Yeah. But wasn't Big Star? Big Star surely as well. Was that that sounds like a hit single to me. I think it was the single from the album. It was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, didn't do anything, obviously, but yeah, I think that was the the, the track uh, extracted to be the single there's a song called poor little fish on here that i think had an afterlife turned up in a movie or something but i think it's full of of strong songs that yeah in a parallel universe would have been would have been big hits but i do take the point about them maybe lacking a stipe or some kind of focal point uh to to capture the the public's attention that's probably something they suffered from but who knows i mean it could be any kind of combination of things like you know, maybe their management wasn't strong enough or, you know, someone just didn't tick a box at the record company and you're not priority for promotion or something. Luck, timing, what else is going on around you at the same time? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's all, yeah. Um... yeah, there's so many factors that could mitigate against you having a success, aren't there? 
yeah. you, you know, I mean, I often say to people, it's like spinning the chambers on a on a safe, and they all happen to land on the on the right number, and you can open it. That's sort of what being in, in a band is is like. Every factor has got to be in line and in agreement and ready to work on your behalf for it to for it to really take off. You know, you've got to have good management, a good uh, sympathetic record company, uh, you know, good promotion, a good PR. Uh, the you know the the members of the band have all got to be firing on all cylinders and wanting it. And you know, there's so many things that could just make you spin off course um that it's amazing anyone ever gets anywhere it's a game show yeah (laughs) yes that's right it's the fate of so many bands there isn't it so many bands that you kind of want to sing from the rooftops and say look everyone should be playing this more than whatever else is at number one today but it just doesn't happen and maybe that's no bad thing well i often wonder if i think most bands most artists get success they deserve and by deserve i mean that they've put the work in that they've covered all these bases it's not just about writing great songs and making great records but you've got to put the research in and uh, as to how the machine works and you've got to make sure that if you're you know if your manager's weak you've got to be prepared to sack them and you've got to be a bit ruthless and you've you know won't take no for an answer and you've got to you've got to know what you're doing uh, yeah there's the famous u2 thing isn't there of um uh, you know, always asking people that were on the next stage ahead of you. You know, what's the view like up there? How do I how do I get up there? What's <laughs> what do I do next? And you've got to be that kind of mm. prepared, really. Uh, otherwise, it's just not going to happen. You you have to reconfigure your ambitions, don't you? Because it's all about growth and and getting bigger. And if you're not, if you're staying in the same you know league, you just think, am I am I wasting my time here? I'm just peddling and not getting anywhere. And yeah, I suppose that's one reason why so many bands just end up disappearing. Or... Well, yeah, there comes that point in a, in, a, in every band's career where you've just got to take stock and think, this isn't happening, is it? This isn't going anywhere. And um, I think Mickey right. Bereni- yeah. Mickey Berenier yeah. talks about that in her book, doesn't she? Uh, where she says, lush, we're touring America and just ending up in the same venue every year mm. and thinking, well, you know, we're not going any further. Yeah. There also comes a point in most bands' careers when they look up and realise the terrain's changed, you know, and... Uh, uh oh, music's altered. What are we going to do, guys? <laughs> it's like a hair metal band when Nirvana arrives, you know. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that happens quite a lot on a regular basis, really, that, that yeah. music alters and, and bands yeah. just have to kind of go, right, that's it. <laughs> yes. I've yeah. T- yeah. We've done all we can here, guys. <laughs> Time to uh, retire gracefully, uh, which is um, a good cue. Uh, I think that's it. Thank you very much for coming along and uh, chatting about these albums and bringing them along uh, to share with us today. Really enjoyed it. Uh, And good luck, good further luck with uh, your tremendous books. Are you going to do sequels, either of you? Uh, well, uh, while while we've been doing this, uh, Nick, neither of our books have been nominated by Rough Trade as the books of the year. That's 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 breaking news, Nick. Who is it? <laughs> okay, commiserations. Uh, 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 yeah. So never mind. So we we failed. We failed to make that chart, Nick. Yeah, I'm thinking of another idea, but I don't quite know what it is yet. Nick, no plan. I've had quite a few people contacted me like you know band people who've been in bands before asking to be in volume two but no there's no plans at the moment all right well good luck with whatever happens thank you once again very much for coming along and joining me here both of you in winwood and nick durden thank you so much thank you thanks jim thank you bye bye everyone bye, bye.
We've been discussing Randy the Band by Randy, reading, writing and arithmetic by The Sundays and The Sound of Lies by The Jayhawks. You can hear all three albums plus other music we've mentioned today plus further suggestions for undervalued music by my guests on a Spotify playlist. Just search for You're Not On The List, Season 2, Episode 8. Uh, That's it for this season. We're shutting up shop for the winter, but we'll be back in the new year with much more of the same, so please make sure you've subscribed so you don't miss notifications of our return. And in the meantime, why not revisit our You're Not On The Christmas list special from last year and the playlist that accompanies it. Season's greetings to you all. If you fancy leaving a, a review or rating of the show, please do so wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps drive like-minded listeners to us, and we really appreciate that. Uh, any comments or queries, go along to jimirvin.com and write to me via the contacts page there. Or uh, if you prefer to leave a voice message, you can do that at the You're Not On The List homepage at anchor.fm. We'll be sure to uh, pass on your feedback in forthcoming episodes. So that's all from us for now. See you next year. Bye-bye.